We're in the book of Romans, and we're uh, in the uh, second chapter. But open up your, your Bibles, if you have them, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to explain to you what's going on here. And the reason I want to do that is while I was studying this particular week, this particular section of Scripture, it dawned on me that it's pretty heavy all of a sudden. And what it is, is, is Paul is explaining to people who have decided to reject Jesus Christ, or who have tried to muster up enough um, righteousness of their own to be right before God, he's warning them that he is saying you can't do that. And so what he does is, is he's not in Rome yet, as you and I well know. He's not been there. He doesn't know these people personally. He just has a, a love for them through, through, through the desire to reach people there for the cause of Christ. He was called to the Gentiles. Just as Peter was called to the Jews, Paul was called to the Gentile nation. So Paul, if you remember, if you remember in chapter 1, he introduces himself. And what did he tell them he was? He says, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Then he says, I'm called as an apostle, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. He says six verses later, in verse 6, he says, You also, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. All of you, he mentions them in Rome, but it's to all of us who are called as saints. The moment you and I give our hearts to Christ, we are called a part of the ministry to Jesus Christ. Now Paul introduces himself immediately as a bond servant. And now we're going to make a point today in this particular service about what does it mean to serve? Because here's what is taking place. If you'll, if you'll remember in chapter 1, Paul says, here I am, I'm a bond servant, I'm called as an apostle, I'm set apart. And then he says in verses 14, 15, and 16, I know you remember well, he says the three I am's, I am under obligation, I am also eager to preach, and he also says I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says in verse 17, the gospel is this, it, it is from faith to faith, and it is that the righteous person shall live by faith. Then all of a sudden, Paul stops, so to speak, and he addresses those who have just re rejected the whole idea of God. And if you remember, in chapter 1, starting with verse 18, he says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. He says in verse 19, that which was known about God was evident to these people because God made it evident to them. Therefore, he says in verse 20, since, since, since the creation of this world, all of his attributes have been clearly seen, he says to them, you're without excuse. There's no excuse. You, you can't say, well, I didn't know. No, he's saying, you know, you know. Well, as we saw in chapter 1, in, in, in verses 24, 26, and 28, three times God says God gave them over. God gave them over to their different lusts, their different passions, and, and, and it, it spiraled downward for these dear people. Well, chapter 2, as we studied last week, 
verses 1 to 5, he says those, now he's speaking not to those who have just rejected God, he's now speaking to those who are spiritual. He's speaking to those who are quote-unquote religious, who think they have a relationship with God, but have no idea who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, look, what he says, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2, you are without excuse, every one of you. And he talked about last week that the whole idea of you have an idea of what you think is truth. You have an idea of how you think you can go to God, but you must go to God through God's truth, not your own. You see, God has, has set a standard of how people are to come to Him. And we can't pick and choose how we want to make that work. We've got to come to God through His truth, which is what we saw last week. We stopped that last week, starting to talk about those who say, okay, maybe I'm not understanding the truth completely, but I've done enough good that God must accept me for who I am. And he says, as we're going to read tonight, in verse 6, he's going to render to every man according to their deeds. And none of us, as we're going to learn tonight, wants to stand before God on our deeds. We don't. God's going to make that crystal clear through Paul. Then Paul reaches out to the Jewish people in Rome, and he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, if you bear the name Jew, and you rely upon the law, and you boast in God, which they did, and, and rightfully so, they were God's chosen people. He says, indeed, in verse 25 of chapter 2, he says, indeed, circumcision is of value. In other words, being a Jew, being circumcised is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, your, your, your traditional standards of what you say before God have become untraditional. It, it doesn't do you of any value. And this is his premise, is what Paul is doing in these in these chapters, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And I wanted you to kind of get the flavor of what Paul is doing, because it can seem heavy. Then he goes and he speaks, after he speaks to the, those that just reject God, those who are religious or, or spiritual, and those who are the Jews, he goes down to everybody in chapter 3. Starting with verse 9, he says, what then? Are, are, are we better than they? No, not at all, he says. Because we've always, we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. As he says in verse 10, there was, there's not one righteous, not even one, not one. Once he's through with that premise, once he's through from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20, he then now presents to the people Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we're going to study, and we're going to have so much fun in the book of Romans, is it, it expresses the whole idea of grace. Paul teaches grace so amazingly. Let me show you what he does in, in the process of teaching about grace. Look what he says in, 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 chapter, in chapter 3, verse 22. He says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. In other words, God doesn't care whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. It doesn't matter to Him. What matters to Him is your faith in Jesus Christ. And then He says in chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say then? 
about Abraham. He's talking about the father of faith, our forefather according to the flesh. What has he found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And that's going to shoot down his premise of tonight. You'll see in a moment. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's presenting to them the whole idea of Jesus Christ. And he presents it so beautifully. He presents grace, God's unmerited favor. He presents grace so beautifully that all of a sudden they come up with this premise in chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? They're asking Paul a question. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if God is so kind to forgive us of our sin, let's make him look really wonderful and keep on sinning. And Paul says in the second verse, may that never be. No, he says, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And so, if you come back with me now to chapter 2, I want you to know that right now what, what Paul is doing is he's not, he's not setting a standard for salvation, although salvation is always the key. It's always important. But what he is doing is warning people who want to be, quote-unquote, in this case, religious. He's warning them that if they continue in this path, there's only judgment that will be awaiting them. And they don't want that. Nobody does. And so I'm going to be preaching tonight as if, as if, uh, as if it sounds like I'm, I'm condemning. It's, it's not. That's why I wanted to go over this. I wanted you to see what Paul was doing in his messages so that you and I would get a flavor of what is being said here in the second chapter. Read with me please now from verse 5. To verse 11. It says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to their deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality, immortality, excuse me, eternal life, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. And what Paul is doing is breaking down the whole line of, of just different races and different, different people. He says there's, God is, there's no partiality with him. He, he accepts all and everyone. Now let's, let's pray and let's get into this. This is, this is one of those m amazing places in scripture. Father, please. Would you bless us? Bless us by teaching us of your word. As I pray every week, I try to anyways. Father, would you open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law? Would you allow us, dear God, to sense your presence amongst us and that you might teach us? Move me aside, I beg of you, Lord. 
so that I'm not the issue in this, that, that we, would, we would sense that you are speaking to our very soul. So bless us, Father, please, and may we bless you back in return. Father, we ask all of these things in the most precious name that has been given amongst mankind. That is the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, Father. We love him so much, Lord. And so please bless us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. By the way, the reason I'm down here is we've been having trouble with the, the mic, and it kind of fades in and out, and so we're trying to find a place where I can stand where it doesn't kind of uh, fade in and out. But that's why I'm down here. Okay, in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see that God will judge man not only against His truth, God's truth, but also, as we're going to see this week, He's going to judge man according to man's so-called good deeds or or, or, or works, those things that he does to be right with God. As verse 6 says, he's going to render to everyone, every single person, according to their deeds. Now, remember, we are not seeing in these, verse, in these chapters, chapters 1 to 3, we're not seeing a cry for salvation. We are seeing a warning of judgment to all people who reject Jesus Christ. Now, of course, of course, salvation is always an issue. But in this case, Paul is saying, if you continue on your path of disobedience, there will only be judgment awaiting you, no matter how much good works or deeds that you do. He will render, as he says, to every man according to his deeds. Paul says God's going to judge us according to our standard if we wish. He's going to judge us against our truth. He's going to judge us against our doing good things. But as we see, no man should stand or desire to be judged by what he does apart from God. We said last week in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, it states clearly, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And it says, all of our righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, the Bible says. Paul says in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, famous verse, for by grace you and I have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift from God. And then it goes on to say, and not a result of works, so that none of us should boast. You see, God knows our hearts. God knows that if we could earn our way to heaven, most of us would be up there saying, you know, I, I sure deserve this place. Uh, you know, I mean, if you knew what I did on earth, oh my gosh, I'm the, I'm, you know, I deserve this. We'd boast our heads off. No, God says, no, it's not according to the things that you do down here so that we will not boast. We have been saved through faith, faith in our Lord alone, and, and it is a gift that God wants to give those of us who trust in Him. As we studied a while ago in the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter, the 12th and the 15th verse, John wrote this about our doing good deeds. He writes in, in Revelation 20:12. John says, I saw the dead. I saw the great and the small. In other words, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the idea of, of, of mankind, he saw great people and, and not so great. 
And he said they were standing before the throne and the books, plural, were opened. And another book, one, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in those books. Not the book of life. They were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds, their good works. And two verses later, in verse 15, maybe three verses, in verse 15 it says, But if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, their deeds were of no value. What was of value to these people was purely and only their faith in Jesus Christ and He alone. So God is saying basically if a person wishes to work on his own to obtain eternal life, he may try to do so. It's, you're fully, go ahead, he is saying, but you will be judged, that person will be judged according to his works, his deeds. And God forewarns all mankind that our works will avail us nothing. Our works are like a filthy garment because Paul warns clearly Chapter 3, verse 12, as we read just a moment ago, there is none of us who do good. No, not one. You see, the standard for true salvation, and it's, and it's, it is what we, what we say throughout this church, it is, it, is our, it is our call. The standard for true salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and He alone. It's not a denomination. It's not a church. It's not all the good things that you may or may not do. It is truly and purely your faith in Christ and He alone. But what Paul is saying about good deeds here, he is saying salvation is displayed or seen by you and me, by the good works that the Holy, Holy Spirit produces and, and empowers us within our lives. On, the, on that basis, the Holy Spirit guiding you and me, doing the gifts that He has so given us. You come to Christ and you are endowed with a spiritual gift from God to be used here on earth for our Lord. And so He is saying on that basis, the Holy Spirit guiding us, gifting us, good deeds are a perfect, valid display of our faith. In fact, we are to do these things. It's, it's part of of who we are. Part of who I am is, I'm not the preacher of this church just to be the preacher of this church. I'm one of you. I hope you feel that way about me. And I'm just here doing what God has called me to do. And that's the gift that He has given me, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's my part. And you are supposed to be doing your part. A person's actions form an infallible guide to, to the character of who we are in Christ. Jesus Christ thought it was so important that twice in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 and 20, He says, you will know them by their what? Fruits. That's, his, that's how you're going to recognize each other. You will know one another by your fruits. So it must be made clear. I want you to listen to this now. Scripture teaches both Old Testament as well as New Testament. Scripture teaches that judgment will come by and through our, not our, but 
by people's works. In other words, the way someone is going to be judged if they have rejected God, if they have rejected Jesus Christ, they're going to be judged according to their works. On the other hand, nowhere does it teach within Scripture, either old or new, that salvation is by works. It's been by faith forever. So whatever good, whatever deeds a person does, comes only by God's gracious provision. And only He should be given credit and praise for those things that we do. So, if salvation is wholly by faith, which it is, then how does works enter into the picture? Why works? Why, why does Paul even tell these people in, in Rome, you're going to be rendered judgment or God will render to every man according to his deeds. Why does work come into the picture? Well, Paul continues that great statement in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's, it's a gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that none of us may boast. That's, that's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The powerful verse is verse 10, which often is left behind. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 says this, Great verse. Listen, we are His. We are God's workmanship. We have been created, it says, in Christ Jesus for, do you know what? Good works. We are God's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, it says, God has prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. There is a purpose in your life. There's a purpose in my life. There is a purpose in the life of every single believer that we, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works and we have been created to do something for the Lord with the gift that He has given us. And so that is the process of works. Works is not bad when it's done by a believer in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not an accident that I pray every time, Lord, move me aside and, and you do this, not me. I don't want to get caught up in, in, in anything of, of me in preaching the gospel. I want it to be all about our Lord, every bit of it about our Lord. So we have been created in Jesus Christ for good works, which... By the way, God has already prepared for us. All He asks us to do is walk in them. In other words, salvation truly comes through faith. But true, good works only comes through God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul reasons with us, God has prepared this work for you. Just walk in it. Just do what He has prepared for you to do. That's why I beg of you to find out where your niche is. Find out what it is that God has called you to do. What is your spiritual gift? Find out so that you can walk in that great, that great blessing of serving the Lord by doing something that He's already prepared for you. So, when God sees a work of righteousness, He knows that comes from a heart that's been born again. But also, when he sees the work of unrighteousness, when he sees someone doing busy work or doing work or doing really good things, but, but not 
not in the name of our Lord, that, that comes from an unregenerated heart. And that is of no value, the Bible says. You see, God doesn't really need to see our hearts. He knows the very secret places within us. We are the ones that need to see, which causes there to be this little rub between this place in Scripture and James, which I want to explain to you, because you need to know. We need to understand it. Turn to James. Hold on to this place here in Romans chapter 2. Turn to the right. If you get to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, turn back to the left. You'll go past Jude and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter. And right after Peter is James. If you're going the other way, you'll hit Hebrews and then James. Look at James chapter 2, and I really would love for you to... I'm going to wait for you to get there. I would love for you to see this place because it can be confusing because it sets up the whole premise that you've, not, you've got to work. But here's, here's the idea. You guys, we now know why it is we are to serve the Lord. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He's already prepared for us so that we should walk in them. In James chapter 2, verse 14, James asks the question, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James goes on and gives us an example. Say, for instance, a brother or a sister, verse 15. A brother or a sister is without clothing, and they need, they need daily food. And one of us says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. And yet... You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? James reasons. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. What he is saying, basically, is that you and I, once we come to Christ and we, we have this faith in Christ, there should be a, a display of, of, of works that come out of us, good works, fruits. You will know them by their fruit. You will see the display of this. So, James goes on to say, Someone may well say, you have, verse 18, Someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. He says, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. He then goes and kind of gets a little... Preachy with them, he says, you believe that God's one? You do what you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. In other words, there is but one God, yes. But he says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's, a, that's an amazing statement. That gives a lot of people a credence to say, well, you got to work your way to heaven. There are some cults that believe that. You've got to do good things as well as believing you also have to do good things. Let me explain it this way, if I may, and I won't forget where I am here. Let me tell you what, the way I see it. And this is the best way I know to give you an example. I think it works. I became a Christian on, on March 12, 1973. I've told you folks that I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I also got married September the 14th, 1973. By the grace of God, my wife, Kay, said I do, and married me. I became a married man on September the 14th, 1973. Since that time, it has been my joy to love my wife and to 
and to do good things for her. It has been my joy to try to treat her the best I know how. When I treat her nicely, it doesn't make me more married to her. I'm as married to her as I'm ever going to be when I said I do on September the 14th, 1973. I was married then, and I'm no more married today than I was that moment. But my doing good for her, my doing kind things to her, doesn't make me more married. You know what it does? It just puts on display my love for her. It, it, it gives me an opportunity to show her over and over and over and over again how much I love her. The same thing with our faith. When you have accepted Christ in your heart, on me it was like March, what, March 12, 1973. I was saved at that moment in time in my life. I was a Christian, and my doing good for the Lord over the years has nothing to do with me being more of a Christian. I am as much a Christian today as I was on March the 12th. The only reason I do what I do unto the Lord is to display to Him my love and my appreciation. That's all it is. And so, that is what you and I ought to do with our lives. We ought to display our love for the Lord. So Paul, excuse me, James writes in verse 20, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that your faith without works is useless? You ought to love the Lord. Then he gives an example. He says, Abraham, Abraham, the father, was justified by works when he offered up Isaac, on the, his son, on the altar. Now here's one of the keys. Verse 22, he says, you see. God doesn't need to see it. We did. He says, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What the Bible is saying is that you and I need to see the fruit of someone's life to see that they are truly believers. It is a part of who we are. It's in our DNA. It should be, it should be our joy. It should be our blessings to serve the Lord in any and every capacity that we can. It ought to be what we do as a, a display of our love for the Lord. Just as, just as I will go home tonight and... Kay and I have this tradition that we do is it, it doesn't you need to know it's not that big of a deal but yeah it is well no it is not I probably should tell it's really personal but it's 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 my love to her I, I I I will never go to bed without expressing my love to her it's just it's just in my DNA and I don't do that to be more married yeah maybe I do it to be happy you know to get, get be uh, treated better you know in return but. Uh, but I do that purely because I love her. And I come here and I serve the Lord here in this church with you, not for any other reason except to express my love to God. I've told you guys this before. When I speak, my audience isn't so much you, my audience is my Lord. When I study, it's not so much to try to learn everything I can, which is what I want to do, but it's also to express to Him how much I appreciate Him saving me and giving me everlasting life. I want to love him, and I want to express that. And you see, you see that I am a believer in Jesus Christ by what I do. It's part of it. You know, it gives a burden to us as, as, as believers. 
Because in our families, they'll watch us. They'll watch us like a hawk. And they'll wait for us to make a mistake. And it means that it is, it is important for you and me to try to live to us to be a light into this world, this darkened world in which we live. It is important for you and me to, to live to be salt on this earth. To be an example so that people can see, can see the very wonders of Christ. One of the greatest joys you will ever have, at least for me it is, is when someone comes to me and says, you know, there's something different about you, what is it? Man, I've had that done in a market where I go sometimes to do some of the shopping, which I don't do really very well, but I do some. And when I, I'm kind of kind to the girls that just check us out, or the people that check us out, I've had one of them say, boy, you just, you always seem to be upbeat, what's the deal? I take that as my Lord give me an opportunity. I tell him, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I have every reason to be happy today. And then I ask them usually a question that I try to think that's not so intimidating. I say to them, do you church anywhere? That's all I ask. Just, just kind of makes it easy. And they say, oh, and you should see. When, when Kay and I were in Paris, I told you a story about a man that took us to a place to eat and all that. And he said to me, boy, you guys, there's something different about you too. What is it? And we told him about our faith in Christ. And he said, you know, my mom and dad must be really happy I'm with you two right now. They've been preaching at me about this Jesus my whole life. And I said to him, it's no accident that you and I met in Paris. God wants you to come to know him. Anyways, that's the, that should be our light. People see, see something different with us. And so we see, it says in verse 18 in James chapter 2, I will show you my faith. Verse 22, you see that faith is working. 24, you see that a man is justified by works, not by faith. That's, we need to see that, but God doesn't. We see faith by someone's works, but God doesn't need that at all. He knows the very essence of our hearts. He sees us in here. He sees Jesus in us. So back please to, to uh, Romans chapter 2. And let's take a look at, at Paul now drawing a very clear line to the people in Rome. For those who want to do it by their truth, not God's truth, and they want to reach God with their good works instead of doing it under His power. Paul says in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, he draws a very clear line between two classes of people. Now in reality, there's only two classes of people that exist on this earth, and I believe this is, this I don't know for sure, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is where Dr. J. Vernon McGee got the thing, he was saying you're either a saint or you ain't. Because Paul kind of separates the two classes of people into saved, verses 7 and 10, and unsaved, verses 8 and 9. Both Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and Greek. In verses 7 and 10, let's take a look at that first. True salvation is seen by those who persevere in doing good and seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. Now perseverance is very simple to understand. It is doing good over and over and over and over again throughout a lifetime, which will bring into our lives glory, but glory Above all, God's glory. We don't need glory. We should reflect all, all honor and glory that comes to us up into the heavens. 
Paul teaches this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, whether you eat or you drink, and then he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We, are, we meet on Wednesday mornings. If any of you men would like to meet with us at Kino's, we meet at 6 in the morning. It's, we have the best time. And we're, please come. We have time for our lives. And we were talking about this, Jeff and myself, this, this, this past Wednesday about what does it mean? How do you serve the Lord? And what is it that you, how is it you can display what you do? And I, I told the guys a, a, a time that I spoke to a group of, of, of men, a particular group of men, and, and I told them about this place in Scripture that literally changed their lives. It was really an interesting time. And, and they caught the vision of whatever it is they do, they're to do it for the glory of God. What is it that you do? What is it that you do in your workplace that, that can exemplify to the people you work around or with that you are giving the glory to God for what you do. Also, you should give honor to, to our Lord, but honor that also will come your way. It says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, our Lord says to those who serve Him well, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Once you do that, then you have immortality, which is a day when, and Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, the, this perishable body, perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality, which gives us eternal life. And eternal life is a quality of life. It's, it's a life that, that you and I have right now. We don't have to die to be eternal beings. We are eternal beings. We are as much a part of heaven right now as we are alive as we're going to be when we're there. It's just going to be a different feeling once we're there. Paul said it clear. Listen to what he said. It's, it's, this is one of the great places in Scripture. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to what Paul says. He says, It is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered me up to himself. Paul said a different way in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is just gain. Paul is describing the life of a true believer, what it's like. Perseverance, determined in doing good, seeking glory, honor, immortality, eternal life, all done to glorify God in and through our lives as we live it right now, today. This eternal life for Paul began when he first came to Jesus Christ, just as yours did as mine does. And when God receives a sinner, he asks nothing but that that man, that woman, believes in his son, Jesus Christ. From that moment on, every believer enters into a responsibility of obedience. And you see, I think too many preachers preach that you come to Christ and everything's perfect. You're not going to worry anymore. You're going to go to heaven. That's true. But there is a responsibility once we come to Christ. We're to be obedient. We're to, we're to serve Him. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He which the Father has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's not just, we're not just here to be robots. We're not just here to, to not have a, 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 some responsibility of obedience. We have become a child of God. 
and the mark of his spiritual life upon us is our obedience to him. You know, it's, it's as simple as when, and I'm sure that most of you do that when you had kids and, you, and they finally get to get in the car and drive the car on their own and go out and be with their friends. And one of the standards that Kay and I would say, we'd pray with them before we leave, they left. And then we would say to them, remember, you represent the Werhaus family. Just as I represent you where I go, you represent mom and dad where you go. Remember, when you and I leave here, we represent our Lord and Savior. We represent Him in and through our lives. And Scripture makes it clear, just as surely as we are saved by faith, that we are to be obedient and serve our Lord throughout our lifetime. Now Paul contrasts those of verses 7 and 10. He contrasts those with those who do not belong to him. Verses 8 and 9. Those who similarly prove that their deeds are done by their own power. He says those who are selfishly ambitious. And now we're going to have to break down these words in the Greek to find out what Paul is saying. They do not obey the truth. Those who are selfishly ambitious do not obey the truth, but rather they obey unrighteousness. They obey wrath and indignation. There's going to be for them tribulation, distress, for every soul of every man who does evil. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. The first characteristic of an unredeemed person, someone who is not born again, is that they are selfishly ambitious. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word for selfishly ambitious is one, one just one word, E-R-I-T-H-E-I-A. It means they are a hireling. In other words, they are a person who does whatever it is they do for simply for money, simply for honor, simply to get credit without regards for other. We have so many people here. I, I, I mentioned yesterday because and I mentioned them too many times because it embarrasses them, but there are so many people here who just serve the Lord. Now I'm going to bury someone else, but the Berry Hills. Have you ever watched Dorothy and Brad? Have you ever seen them serve the Lord? It's a, it is a work of, of art. They just love Jesus Christ. Secondly, it says those who live apart from this lifestyle that we've exp we expressed in verses 7 and 10, they are disobedient to the truth. Not obedient to the truth. God's only truth, of course, is His Word. This is why we study what we do here in this church. This is why we try to get you and me acquainted to what is written within these pages. That's why we're going through the book of Romans, line upon line, word after word, so that we might understand what is it that Paul is trying to say to us. Being disobedient to the truth is synonymous with rebellion. And spiritual rebellion began at the fall in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3 when God told Adam, you shall eat from any tree in the garden, but the tree in the middle of the garden you shall not, you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the serpent came to Eve and tempted her and she ate of that fruit and she gave some to her husband Adam and they ate. And there is rebellion, disobedient to God's word. Thirdly, they, don't, they obey unrighteousness. 
Jesus declared categorically in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you can only, you cannot serve two masters. He says either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll hold the one and despise the other. It can be deduced, folks, from studying Scripture that nobody serves no master. In other words, everybody serves somebody. You know, I, I said yesterday a couple of times that uh, August was really blown away by my saying this, but uh, I remember a while back that Bob Dylan, uh, I don't know how long ago, it was quite a while ago, made a profession of his faith that he became a believer. I, I, when anyone like high-profile does that, I, I like to step back and watch for a while, see what takes place. But he wrote a song that was absolutely killer. It was the greatest song. He showed the song, you got to serve somebody. That was right on. Whoever taught him was teaching him right on. you got to serve somebody. Folks, that is the truth of the Bible. You will serve somebody. You either serve God or something or someone else. And when a person does not serve God, the other thing or person or whatever it is they serve will only lead to disobedience. It doesn't spiral upward. It only spirals downward. You've got to serve somebody. And the road to hell is very simply defined here in verses 8 and 9. It is a person who is selfishly ambitious, a hireling, wants to do what they do just for monetary reasons. They're disobedient to the truth, God's truth, His word, and they obey unrighteousness. And these people will come about, will come into their lives, wrath and indignation. And I got blown away when I studied these two words. The word wrath is in the Greek, O-R-G-E, you need to understand it. It means the strongest kind of anger. It is an anger that reaches a fever pitch quickly. Have you ever met those types of people? They get mad, boom, they go from zero to 100 just like that. That's the wrath. The other, per, the other word, indignation, is T-H-U-M-O-S in the Greek, and it represents an anger that is relentless. It will not forgive, and it will not stop. And so it is, a, it is an anger that reaches a fever pitch quickly and won't stop. It'll try to put the other person down some way, somehow. Consequently, our Lord says to this person who becomes like that, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of a person who does evil, Jew as well as to the Greek. The word tribulation is T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. It has a root meaning of exerting extreme pressure. It's translated as affliction. It is translated as anguish, as persecution. The other word distress is S-T-E-N-O-C-H-O-R-I-A. On the other hand, it refers to, basically that word refers to something that is narrow, a narrow place. It refers to severe confinement or constriction, interestingly. Part of hell's torment is it that it is absolute, it is isolated, it is lonely. It is with eternal confinement, with no possible hope of release or escape. Paul uses the phrase twice in verses 9 and 10. The Jew first and also to the Greek. What he is saying is those who come to know and trust in Christ, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God is is not a respecter of persons. 
And to those Jew and Gentile who refuse to come to Christ, they will be condemned. They're either praised or condemned by God. You see, the Jews were used to thinking themselves as being first before God, which is correct. They are God's chosen people. But God was saying to them, as we're going to see in next week, that they too got to lay aside their traditions and they got to come to trust and believe in their Messiah. Just as the Gentiles need to believe, so must the Jew. So next week what we're going to see is God is, has no partiality. If you look at verse 11, he says, There is no partiality with God. It will be for Jew as well as for Gentile. All will either be saved or condemned, whether you be Jew or Gentile. It's not the issue. That's why when people say, well, what about Jews? What about this denomination or this group of people? It doesn't matter what denomination and what group of people you are in. It's not the issue. The issue is your faith in Jesus Christ and He alone. That's the issue. And so today we leave you with this. You ought to know without hesitation that doing good works without faith in Christ is of no value. But once you have faith in Christ, doing good works is our responsibility. It's our privilege. It's our blessing. You and I are, have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those things that God has already prepared beforehand so that you and I might walk in them. So as a church, I get to the very nitty gritty of it, I think. It is, a, it, is, it is purposeful for you and me as a church to stop allowing the 20% of the people of our church to do 80% of the work. Rather, it should be all of us, all of us doing whatever it is that we can to serve the Lord here in this body of believers. I think God's got great things ahead of us. I do. I want to thank you for being here tonight. I know that coming on Sunday evenings isn't always easy for you. But you come. I am honored by that. I love you with all my heart. I've never loved a group of people more than I love you guys. Especially for how you've been so faithful. Father, I want to thank you for this night. I want to thank you for this place in Scripture. It's, it's incredible, Father, what you what you teach us through Paul. Pray that we, uh, we do your, your word. We honor it, Father. And that we will bless you by serving you. We've just learned that, that true truth and true good works are all tied up in our faith and our belief and our trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. To go any other way is a disaster. So, Father, may we just follow you, serve you all the days of our lives, I pray in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen. I love you all so much. Thank you for being here.